But let's stand it together, if you're able to, for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah 17, and we'll be in verses 1, 2, and 3 this evening. Verses 1, 2, and 3, the Bible says, The burden of Damascus. Behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city. It shall be a ruinous heap. The cities of Aroer uh, are forsaken. They shall be for flocks which shall lie down, and none shall make them afraid. The fortress also shall cease from Ephraim, and the kingdom from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria. They shall be as the glory of the children of Israel, saith the Lord of hosts. And so we know from um, earlier in the book of Isaiah chapter 7 that the ten northern tribes of Israel and Syria came together in a pact or alliance to attack Judah. They were going to go after Judah. And now God is giving seven burdens to seven different nations. And he takes Syria and Israel and binds them together as one and gives them both the same threat. You see, Israel, they were God's chosen people, but they had chosen to make themselves so rebellious against God that they had joined themselves to a pagan nation in Syria, and now God viewed Syria and Israel as one, as one. And he's going to punish them one and the same. The title of the Bible study this evening is this, The Ruin of the Rebel Nations. The Ruin of the Rebel Nations. God does not do well with rebellion. So we're going to talk about rebellion a little bit tonight. We're going to see rebellion in the heart of Syria and Israel, and we're, we're going to see the outcome of it. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for a, a, a Bible that is in some places easy to understand and in other places challenging to understand. Thank you that all Scripture is profitable. And Lord, that uh, no matter what, where we open to, if we put enough effort into it, there are truths there for us to see and grasp and understand. Tonight, as we look at these countries... And we see how you handle them. Help us to remember that you are immutable. You never change. And Lord, you handle immorality the same way today that you handled back then, both against a country who's rebellious and, Lord, against a person who's rebellious. So, Lord, help us to be reminded of these truths. Help us to be open and transparent with our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, the truth is a rebellious heart always leads to a wrecked life. Um, many teenagers go through a spell of rebellion. And some teenagers come out of that rebellious stage in their early 20s. Some never get out of that stage and are rebellious all the way to the grave. All the way to the grave. How many of you ever met someone in their 40s, 50s, and 60s and you think, you're still rebelling, yeah, right? You, you just haven't moved out of that stage, right? Um, I, I'm not going to describe what they stereotypically would look like or behave because I, I'm sure you know. But to the degree we are rebellious to God and His way of life, to that same degree we bring the hand of punishment of God down on top of us. Let me say that again. To the degree we are rebellious against God and His way of life that He has for us to that same degree, we're going to live under the hand of God and His punishment. God, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, in reference to Christians, Hebrews 12 tells us, For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth, even as a father 
in His Son in whom He delighted. I was talking with someone earlier today, and they said, you know, I think every now and then God just gets put up with us, and He just pulls out a baseball bat and whack! And I laughed, and I said, no, God doesn't lose His cool and just hammer us, right? Aren't you glad God's not some big mean ogre in heaven with a stick, and uh, when He's had enough, He just bonks us on the head real hard? Aren't you glad He doesn't do that? Amen. I, we'd all have, you know, like in the cartoons, how many of you watched Looney Tunes growing up? Amen. Politically incorrect, right? Looney Tunes. I can't even watch that anymore. But you hit them on the head and what happens? A knot shoots straight up. If that was me, I'd have knots coming out everywhere. God would constantly be bonking me on the head. Um, I'm thankful that God corrects us only when He feels that He needs to and only enough to try to get us back on track. But if you are a Christian, you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you, and He has a plan for your life, and you're outside of that plan, one thing is for certain, He will punish you enough to make you uncomfortable to try to get you back on track. Now, um, some parents deal with stubborn children. Stubborn children. I heard of one mom who had a four-year-old girl, and that four-year-old girl was not going to obey no matter what tactic the mother tried to use to get that four-year-old to obey, she just wasn't going to obey. She enjoyed the confrontation with her mother. And so the mom says, and the daughter is much older now, but the mom says, when my daughter was four, I could not get her to obey, and so I laid down on top of her until she quit hitting me and kicking me and biting me and fighting me. She said, I laid on top of her for five hours. Five hours, that little girl hit her and kicked her and bit her and screamed. Now, I know some Christians that no matter what God does to them, they're just that stubborn. They're not going to change. They're not going to uh, become what God wants. They're going to rule their own life. They're going to do it their way, and uh, they're stubborn. They're stubborn. Yes, God corrects out of love, but some folks are very stubborn. So let me ask you a question, uh, a series of questions this evening, or rather one question, and give you several options here. Which phrases better describe you? Okay, I'm going to give you two um, phrases on polar opposite ends of each other. All right, which phrase better describes you? A stubborn heart or a servant's heart? Are you a stubborn person? A stubborn person's favorite hymn in the hymnal is, I shall not be moved. Amen? I shall not be moved. And the uh, let's all stand. Not, no, we'll stand up, right? I'm just, uh, somebody's going to stand up. Let's all stand for an invitation. If the Lord's speaking to you, come forward. I shall not be, I shall not be moved. Right? They're never going to come to the altar. Now listen, if you don't come to the altar and you have a personal reason for that, Personal conviction against it, that's fine, but you ought to make decisions, right? Is your heart a stubborn heart or a servant's heart? I am convinced that in churches across America, people are flocking to large churches because in most of them, the pastor is never going to push them to change anything about their life. They can go, they can punch the spiritual clock and leave, and they can be entertained in the process, and they can be made to feel good about it. Why go to church where a pastor is going to make me feel bad about the way I live? Churches that do that are are smaller usually in number. And uh, what defines you? A stubborn heart or a servant's heart? Which phrase better defines you? Strong-willed or submissive? 
Strong-willed or submissive. Look at the authority figures in your life, whether it's a boss, a spouse, um, uh, a pastoral authority. I don't really beat people over the head with pastoral authority, but uh, that is in the Bible. Uh, uh, the police officers, uh, the governor, the president. By the way, you may not like the politics of a particular governor or president, but if they are your governor or president or mayor, um, listen, you are to be respectful and kind and prayerful. I, I've said this I got off social media many years ago. I have a Twitter account. Uh, I don't really advertise that much. I don't really post much on there. I usually just use it to stalk other pastors and see what they're talking about. Amen. But um, I used to be active on Facebook. And I got off Facebook for a number of reasons. One of the reasons why I was glad I got off are, were all the conservative Christians bashing President Obama. I got sick of it. I got sick of it. Now, did I like uh, a, a lot of President Obama's policies? I did not. But he was my president. And I see both sides do that. Now listen, uh, which better describes you? Are you submissive to your authority? Or are you self-willed and stubborn? Which phrase better describes you? A my way or the highway attitude? Or a tender heart to do what's right by God and others? I see some husbands who put their foot down in an area. And I'm sure I've been guilty of this at some point. Um, if I asked my wife, she would help me know that I'm guilty of this at some point. Amen? But I put my foot down in an area, or maybe you're this way. You put your foot down in the area, and it's my way or the highway. Wait a minute here. Wait, hold on. If you've thought that through and prayed that through, and you're being gentle about it but firm, that's great. But when we're doing it out of pride, parent, moms, you can, uh, women, you can do this with your husbands. I've seen women do this with their husbands. I've seen uh, parents do this with their children. I've seen children, teenage children especially, do this with their parents. I've seen church members do this to a pastor. I've seen pastors do this to the church member. It's my way or the highway. And what happens is this, is that we're not searching for the best way forward. We're searching for my way forward. Boy, that's a rebellious attitude. Which phrase better describes you? A rebellious heart... Or a righteous heart? A rebellious heart or a righteous heart? Um, I don't want to go through life with a heart of a rebel. I don't want to go through life questioning everything every authority figure says my way. Can I tell you what that is? I'm speaking to adults here tonight. Can I tell you what that is? That's immaturity. That's straight immaturity. Um, we had to question everything the man says. Right? I think that attitude came out of the 1970s. Question the man. Question the man. Uh, listen, uh, I'm not saying that you need to be a yes man and just go through life. Oh, okay, yeah, whatever my authority says. I mean, I'm not questioning. I just 100%. I'm on board. If your authority figure is doing something sinful or wrong or leading in a way that's foolish... If it's sinful or wrong, then you need to stand up against it. If it's foolish and rash, you need to gently and respectfully uh, uh, express your opinion uh, where you can. But uh, we need to make sure that we're not looking to just rebel for the sake of rebellion. And that's exactly what happened with the Israelites. They were rebelling against God for nothing more than the sake of rebellion. Now, let's back up and look a little bit at the history 
of Israel. And I know most of you in here know it, but this sets the stage for the Bible study. So humor me for a minute. Uh, We all know how the nation of Israel started, don't we? God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, okay? And um, that was there in the Mesopotamia area between the two rivers, um, Tigris and Euphrates. Um, And that area, that region was not far away from where Syria was or Syria would be. And Syria is the nation addressed here in Isaiah 17. Now, God had chosen Abraham and his descendants to be a chosen people. By the way, if you want an interesting study, I don't have time to cover all this tonight, go look at how technologically advanced they were in Ur of the Chaldees where Abraham lived. It is a fascinating study. They had running water. They had climate control figured out. Uh, They had tools that were refined. Uh, They had much of what we have today And Abraham left all of that. He was rich, meaning he lived in what would be equivalent to a really nice home, even by today's standards. He left all of that to live in a tent and go to a part of the world that was uncivilized in comparison to where he was so that he would be in the center of God's will. God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees to be a nomad, a wanderer, a traveler, where God would lead him to a place that he would show him upon his arrival. And the Israelites, uh, so Abraham gets settled there, and then God gives him Isaac, and then through Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob, the twelve fathers uh, that would end up being rulers or uh, the heads of state, if you will, of Israel. And through those twelve, all of the descendants of Israel came, and then they established their country after they left Egypt. They had uh, uh, judges, and then they had uh, Saul to be their king, David to be their king, Solomon to be their king, Solomon's son Rehoboam became king. Then things split, and the ten northern tribes went off on their own and established their own country, and then the two southern tribes stuck and became Judah, Judah and Benjamin became the, the, the country of Judah. So now you've got the country of Judah. Above them, you've got the country of Israel. And north of Israel, you have the country of Syria, of Syria. Now, Israel never did have a righteous king. Judah would have righteous kings. But every single king that ruled in the nation of Israel after Rehoboam, the Bible says this. It says they did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Every single king was rebellious against God. Is it any wonder that Israel was carried away into captivity before Judah? They were on a fast track for captivity. So uh, God had chosen Abraham and his descendants to be a chosen people. The Israelites, the ten northern tribes especially, had totally turned their back on God and now had made a pact with wicked Syria for the purpose of taking over Judah. Now, this burden, this judgment laid out is laid out on both Syria and Ephraim or Israel together because they had become as one in their efforts to destroy Judah. I would like it if you would uh, hold your place in Isaiah 17. I think this is paramount for the Bible study tonight. Turn back to 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15, if you would. Turn back there with me. 1 Samuel 15. I want to show you how serious God labels Rebellion. So the backstory here in 1 Samuel 15, we're going back to King Saul. Okay, so this is back in history a little bit from where we are in Isaiah 17. King Saul was commanded by God to wipe out the Amalekites. And 
uh, kill every single one of them, did not leave anyone alive. And uh, critics of the Bible will say, well, that's genocide. And no, it isn't genocide. You see, the Bible says that they had come to the point where their wickedness was full. Their wickedness was full. Many historians believe the Amalekites were living in uh, incest. There was incest going on all throughout their land, and there was all sorts of genetic problems within the people. And God decided these people have been wicked long enough. I've given them every chance to turn around. Saul, I want you to take an army and go in there, and I want you to wipe them out. I don't want them on planet Earth anymore. Let me just say furthermore, when God decides that he's done with the people group, he created that people group. He gets to decide that he's done with that people group. We understand that? God is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants whenever he wants. So Saul goes in with the army, and Saul does not obey God. God says, I want every human killed. I want their animals killed. I want it all. I don't want anything left of the Amalekites. I want every living thing gone. Well, Saul does not obey. Saul goes in, and he keeps the king alive for the purpose of humiliating him. Back in Bible times, what would happen when one kingdom took over another kingdom is they would capture the king, they'd put him in a cage, they would cut off their thumbs and their big toes, and then they would have them sit under their table, and then the king would sloppily eat where crumbs and pieces of food would fall on the floor, and then they'd watch this man who was once a great king with his four, with his four fingers on each hand reach down and pick up the food and put it in their mouth. And they would do that with him for a while, and then they would have him killed. Well, so sure enough, the Amalekite king is captured and they keep some of the animals back that are some of the choicest animals. And Samuel, God's prophet, comes walking into camp. Walking into the palace, rather. And he walks up and says, All right, Saul, how'd it go? And Saul says, It went great. We obeyed God. We wiped them out. And Saul says, wait a minute, I hear something. What is that sound of sheep I hear? And, and, and why is this king here? And you know what Saul did? Saul, come on, Saul. He says, the people made me do it. Wait a minute, Saul, who's the leader? Right? This is like a husband saying, my wife and kids made me do it. No, you're the leader. You're to be the leader. And uh, he, and then Saul comes up with another excuse. Oh, well, we just held on to these sheep to sacrifice them to the Lord. And, uh, and uh, Samuel says back, famously says back, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. Look at verse 23. God rips the kingdom away from Saul. Not at that moment, but in the time to come. He rips it away from his lineage. Look at verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. 1 Samuel 15, 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness is iniquity and idolatry. If you haven't already, uh, mark the word witchcraft and mark the word idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. When we're rebellious against God, God says this is equivalent to you getting mixed up in the occult. This is equivalent to you getting mixed up into Satan and his kingdom. He says when you're stubborn, this is equivalent to you worshiping a false god. Can I just tell you right now, 
Stubbornness is worshiping a false god. Can I tell you what that false god is? It's yourself. You are worshiping you. And I am worshiping me when I do it. I will not obey God. I will obey myself and what I think is best for me. When we're rebellious against God, God says it's equivalent to dabbling in and playing with the occult. And that's exactly what happened with Israel. They got caught up in rebellion and stubbornness. And we'll see that through that, God's going to punish them because they turned their back on them. Now, before we continue and get into the outline, I want to ask you a question tonight. Have you ever had somebody who you loved and invested in turn their back on you? Do you know what that feels like to be betrayed? How about to have a child do it to you that you've loved and invested in? That child turns his back on you and just about completely disowns you. That's how God felt with Israel. I chose you to be my people. I loved you and you have rebelled. All right. Let's go through these 14 verses. We're going to move quickly here. Number one, notice the rebels. The rebels. Look at verse number... Uh, verse. Well, let me give you some thoughts here. Then we'll give you... Uh, we'll read the verses uh, here. Uh, well, okay. I'm sorry. Let's look at verse number one. I'm sorry. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse number 1. I've lost my place there. Isaiah chapter 7 and look at verse number 1. The Bible says, And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, and Rezan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. So, again, there's a lot of names in here. Let me just boil it down. Pekah and Rezin, Pekah the king of Israel, Rezin the king of Syria, have made a pact, and they're going to come in against Ahaz, who's the king of Judah, and they're going to try to overcome it. They're going to try to overthrow it. And they're unsuccessful in that effort. Verse 2. And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. Syria is confederate. Ephraim is another name for Israel, the ten northern tribes. Uh, Syria is confederate, or has made a pact with Israel. And his heart was moved, Ahaz, king of Judah. His heart was moved, and the heart of his people, as the tree of the woods are moved with the wind. Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and uh, Shear, Jashub, thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller field. And saying to him, Take heed and be quiet, fear not, neither be faint-hearted for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin with Syria and of the son of Remaliah, because Syria, Ephraim, and the sons of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, Let us go against Israel, or Judah, and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabiel. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. For that, look here, the prophecy, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Reason, the king Reason, and within three score and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. So the, the prediction here is, look, you have these rebels that have made a pact, and they're coming down and they're attacking you, Ahaz. Don't fear. Rest. Be quiet. God is going to have these countries destroyed within three score and five years, or 65 years. So, uh, quickly here, uh, Rezin became king of Syria in 740 
B.C., 740 years before Christ. Pekah became king of Israel two years later in 738 B.C. And these two kings came together and made an alliance against God's chosen people, uh, an alliance against Judah. So uh, that's uh, number one, the rebels. We see the rebels, they've chosen to rebel against God, make an alliance together, and attack God and his people. Okay, number two, number two, we see God's retaliation, God's retaliation. God is not going to handle this well. Uh, First of all, Israel, who are God's chosen people, have joined with people who are uh, uh, Gentiles and rebellious and idolatrous. They've made a pact with them and they're coming down and trying to take over Judah. And God says, I'm not going to have any of it. Letter A, notice Syria conquered. Syria conquered. Go back to chapter 17 and look at verse number 1. And we'll read verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, The burden of burden or judgment of Damascus. Behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city, and it shall be a ruinous heap. The cities of Aroar are, uh, are forsaken. They shall be for flocks, which shall lie down, and none shall make them afraid. What, what is uh, God saying here? Damascus is going to be destroyed. Now, uh, there are critics of the Bible who say, well, pastor, Damascus is still a city. That, uh, that, was, that, that prophecy was not fulfilled. And the truth is it was fulfilled. Because if you go to Damascus and you look at the archaeological digs, the city of Damascus has shifted around uh, a little bit several times because armies have come and invaded it and conquered it and burnt it to the ground. And then the, the people who were left over built the city back up. So yes, Damascus is one of the oldest cities around, but it was destroyed. In fact, it was destroyed in 732, eight years later, after Rezin became king. Eight years later, it was destroyed uh, by the Assyrians. So Syria was destroyed by Assyria. Turn back in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter number 16 and look at verse number 1. 2 Kings 16 and we'll see the story of, of Syria of Syria being destroyed by Assyria. Syria and Assyria, two separate nations. can be a little confusing, but hang with me here. Look at chapter 16 and we're going to read from 1 down through verse 9. The Bible says, In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty years old was Ahaz when he began to reign, and reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem, and did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord his God, like David his father. So both the king of Israel and the king of Judah are doing that which is wicked. Verse 3, But he, Ahaz, walked in the way of the kings of Israel, yea, and made his sons to pass through the fire, according to the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out uh, from the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places and on the hill and under every green tree. Then Reason, king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to war, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. At that time, Reason, king of Syria, recovered um, Elath uh, to Syria and drave the Jews from Elath, and the Syrians um, came to Elath and dwelt there unto this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tilgath Pilsner, uh, king of Assyria, saying, I am thy servant and thy sons. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Syria and out of the hand of the king of Israel, which raise up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent it for a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria hearkened unto him, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it and carried the people of it captive to Kir and slew reason. So we see here that Syria is conquered. Now, back in Isaiah chapter 7, to try to put all this together, 
Isaiah tells Ahaz, the king of Judah, he says, Do not make an alliance with Assyria. Do not do it. God will defend you. Do not do it. Did Ahaz listen? No. Ahaz went in the temple, and he took all of the money out of the temple. Then he went into his own king's palace, and he took money from there, and he sent money to Assyria and said, We need your help. And this is where Ahaz, his trust was not in God, it was in man. And yes, Assyria did come down and wipe out Syria, wipe out Damascus, but God would have had it done if he would have just trusted him. So Syria conquered, the prophecy of Isaiah comes true. Letter B, we see Israel's captivity. Israel's captivity. Look at verses 4 and 6 of chapter 17. The Bible says, And in that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob shall be made thin. And the fatness of his flesh shall wax lean. So the pride, the glory of Jacob is going to wane and disappear. Their political prominence is going to fall apart. Even their very flesh of those who live there, they're going to become very thin because they're going to become very, very poor. Look at verse 5. And it shall be when the harvest man gathereth the corn and reapeth the ears with his arm. And it shall be as he that gathereth ears in the valley of Rephium. Uh, And uh, yet gleaning grapes shall be left in it as the shaking of an olive tree, two or three berries in the top of the uttermost bow, four or five in the outermost fruitful branches thereof, saith the Lord God of Israel. What's uh, the prophet saying here? He's using imagery. He's saying that not only is Syria going to be conquered, Israel, you're going to be carried into captivity. In fact, just as a man who comes through a cornfield with his arm raking the ears of corn off of the stalks into his arm, into a big barrel, uh, you're going to have armies that come through and rake their arms and uh, capture you and take you out of here. Yes, there's going to be a remnant. There's going to be a couple berries left in the top of the tree or out in the branches. There's going to be a few poor people left behind. But Israel, you're going to be gathered like ears of corn and berries off a tree and you're going to be taken away into captivity because of your rebellious heart. I will not tolerate it any longer. God's retaliation. Number three, notice Israel's repentance. Israel's repentance. Now, how many of you in here are parents? Raise your hand if you are a parent for me. How many parents? Very good. How many of you understand that there are times where your child really is sorry over what they've done. And then there are times where your child is sorry because they got caught. You understand what the difference? They, they feel bad because they're about to get punished. How many of you in here know what I'm talking about from back when you were a teenager? All right? You know what I'm talking about, right? You're not really sorry. You're sorry you've got to face the consequences. Now then and only then does someone... By the way, I'm just going to slip this in here real quick. This might be the nugget you needed to hear at church tonight. How do you overcome habitual sin? Learn to hate the sin, not the consequences of the sin. You see, when we do wrong and do wrong and do wrong and do wrong, and then we have negative consequences, we hate those consequences, but do we really hate the sin? Do we really see it as God saw it? Those that were left behind, now all of a sudden their idolatry and their rebellious witchcraft, all that's about to fall apart and the remnant is going to repent. Now was it that they were truly sorry that they did wrong? 
Or was it that they were so wiped out that they felt sorry because they had to face the consequences? Israel's repentance. Let me give you an A, B, and a C here quickly. Letter A, notice their focus. Their focus. So verses uh, 4 through 6, 3 through 6 rather, tell us how they're going to be punished. Look at verse 7, all right, the remnant that's left. At that day shall a man look at his maker, and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel. What did it take for this remnant to repent? Their entire country had to be demolished. They had to lose everything. They're sitting in heat piles and they're sitting in burnt cities that have ash and soot on their face and they've lost everything and then they turn to their Maker, the Holy One of Israel. Now, God can send hardship into my life and your life anytime He wants. I heard a pastor say this one time, and boy, it was so impactful in my life. He said this, he said, I told God, God, clearly you're allowed to send any hardship my way anytime you want. But I don't ever want you to have to send a hardship my way because I'm not right with you. I don't ever want you to have to do something devastating in my life because I'm running from you. You see, God can, if you're really His child, God knows how to get your focus. You're over here worshiping yourself and worshiping money and worshiping a way of life. God knows how to rattle your cage real hard. God, why would you make me so sick? God, why would you take my job? God, why would you allow my money in the stock market to, to disappear? And God says, do I have your attention now? You've been looking everywhere but me. Now again, we have to be careful not to judge other people. Hardship hit someone's life. Don't be one of Job's friends. I know why that happened to him. Ah, God's punishing her. Oh, don't, don't we do that. Amen? We give people the benefit of the doubt. But in our own life, boy, let's make sure we're focused on God so He doesn't have to take things away from us to get our focus. Letter B, we see their failure. Their failure. Look at verse number 8 and 9. 8 and 9. The Bible says, For the fields of Heshbon... I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. Verse 8 and 9. And he shall not look to the altars. What are their failures? Well, what was going on on these altars? Look here. The work of his hands. They had built their own idols to worship. Neither shall respect that which is his, which his fingers have made, either the groves or the images. Again, they've taken their hands, they've taken metal and wood, they've carved, they've shaped their own idols to put up there and to worship. Verse 9, In that day shall his strong cities be as a forsaken bow and an uppermost branch which they left because of the children of Israel and there shall be desolation. You see, their failure was they did not worship God. They worshiped false idols. They were rebellious. By the way, rebellion always leads to idolatry. And what do we have here? When they rebelled against God's authority, they placed themselves under Satan's authority. They rebelled against God's authority, they placed themselves under Satan's authority. Look, when you hear a sermon 
in the pulpit or you read your Bible and the Spirit of God says to you, that needs to change, and you leave here and don't change a thing, and you have a cold heart about it, can I tell you that you're living in a state of rebellion? Can I tell you that at least in that area of your life, Satan is your authority? That was their failure. They had made Satan their authority and their rebellion against God. We have this idea, I'm rebelling against God and His rules. The Bible's got too many rules. I'm just going to live however I want. I'm I'm in charge of my own life. No, you're not. No, you're not. Satan's in charge of your life. And that led to failure. Now that they've lost it all, you know what they're not turning to? They're not turning to that idol they built with their hands. They've turned to their maker. The Holy One of Israel. Let her see. We see their forgetfulness. Look at verse 10. Chapter 17, verse 10. Because thou hast forgotten the God of thy salvation and hast not been mindful of the rock of thy strength, therefore shalt thou plant pleasant plants and shalt set it with strange slips. Now some prophecy in this verse quickly here. Um, When the Assyrians went through Israel... They burnt down the trees. They burnt everything down. They had it all destroyed. And it was an effort made after World War II to plant new trees all throughout this same region. So when the Bible says in the end of verse 10, Therefore thou shalt, shalt thou plant pleasant plants, and shalt set it with strange slips, that was a prophecy that was fulfilled in the 1940s. But why did that have to happen? Why did this utter desolation and destruction come to Israel? Because they forgot the God of their salvation. I think it was worded this way in Revelation 2 to the church of Ephesus, Thou hast left thy first love. Boy, I don't want to be guilty of forgetting God. I've been married for 14 years, happily married, madly in love with my wife, thankful that God's given me a wonderful, virtuous woman to be married to. Um... Can I tell you that in order to stay in love with my wife and for her to stay in love with me, there is strong effort put into our marriage to keep the marriage fires burning. You know, it's easy to keep a marriage fire burning when you see that person day in and day out. My eyes don't behold God. I don't hear God's voice. I don't get to touch God. And so there has to be an effort made to stay in love with God. There has to be disciplines in place. Bible reading and prayer and time of worship and meditation on God set apart so we don't forget Him. Number four, lastly, we see the reaping. The reaping. Well, God had made up His mind that He was done with the ten northern tribes. They would be carried away into captivity, never to be brought back again, at least not until the millennial reign of Christ, uh, and that's still to come. What came as a result of their sin? Letter A, we see a harvest of sorrows. A harvest of sorrow. Look at verse 11 of chapter 17. In that day shalt thou make thy plants to grow. So there's going to be agricultural continuing, but the remnant that's left in Israel. And in the morning shalt thou make thy seed to flourish, but the harvest shall be a heap in the day of grief and of desperate sorrow. If we had the time, we'd turn over to Galatians 6 and 7, 8, and 9, and we would look at the verses of planting and, and sowing. We're short on time, but I just want to make quickly this application. When you plant sin in your life and heart, 
you do not usually see a harvest the next day, the next week, the next month. The harvest of consequences usually comes up a season or two later. Now, we can become disenchanted with God because we live a life of sowing sin, and then we make a change and we start doing right, but yet we're still facing the consequences over our past mistakes. And we think, God, I've moved on from that, and I confess that, and the Bible says that you're supposed to forgive me. Why am I still being punished? The truth is, you can be forgiven and still suffer consequences from your choices. Furthermore, we can reverse that. You could spend a life planting seeds of righteousness and doing right, and you may be into the harvest time a couple of seasons later of reaping that, and then you may begin living a life of sin and thinking, well, see, I'm doing wrong, but I'm still being rewarded. Well, it may just be that that harvest is going to come up a couple of seasons later. You with me? You understand? Israel had, for generation after generation, planted seeds of idolatry and rebellion, and now the harvest was in full bloom. There, yes, they were planting seeds of repentance. It was too little too late. God said, what you're going to get in return is a harvest of sorrows. Let her be. And lastly, we see a host of soldiers. A host of soldiers. And again, this prophecy would come true just a couple of years after it, uh, Isaiah prophesied it here in uh, chapter 17. Look at verse 12. Speaking of the army coming to get them. Woe or beware of the multitude of many people which make a noise like the noise of the seas and the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. And we know that prophecy came true because the Assyrians and an army of well over 100,000 came rushing through Israel and brought them into captivity because of their rebellion. What's the application tonight? We're done. What's the application tonight? Don't have a rebel's heart. Have a heart that's tender and submissive and a servant's heart. And let God, God in the Bible, be your authority. If God says something, you shouldn't be doing something. Don't argue with the Bible like you're arguing with your dad when you were 16. Just say, God, you're smarter than me. I'm going to trust you. God says, I need you to start doing this in the Word of God. Okay, Lord, I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to start doing this. I'm not going to live in rebellion to you any, any longer. And when we learn to take the Bible and live by it verse by verse and make God our ultimate authority, boy, what we find is rest. Rest. There are walls that God puts around the Christian. Why are those walls there? Are they there to, you know, limit you? No, they're there to protect you. Amen? Protection is there. You get outside of the walls, boy, then you start to feel the consequences of sin. And so don't scoff or buck at the, at the, at the limitations God puts around you. Embrace them. Let's not have a rebellious heart. Let's not suffer this, the, the, the demise and destruction of those who rebel. Let's stand together for a word of prayer this evening. Thankful that you all made it out on a Wednesday night. And uh, you see someone around you that uh, you don't know their name or you're not familiar with them, take a minute and shake their hand and get to know them and um, uh, make, make a friend tonight. Amen. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you tonight for this, these truths in this Bible study. Thank you this evening, God, for helping us to see that you're gracious and long-suffering, but rebellion ultimately leads to destruction. Lord, where you have unveiled rebellion in our hearts, May we deal with it, confess it, 
And Lord, may we uh, live a life that's righteous and holy before you. Thank you, Lord, that we can come to you with our struggles and help us to do that this week. Give us a great week as we go out into our various uh, responsibilities. May we give it our best effort. May we be good ambassadors for you in the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' name.